What will drive us into mission? What will drive us into mission in sharing Christ with the world? Now, don't worry, I know most of us have all sat through sermons where we've been cajoled into mission, admonished into mission, begged into mission. But this is not a sermon that is gonna be begging you to go and tell. Because these two disciples on the road to Emmaus needed no prodding to go and tell. They needed no prodding into mission. And this is the pattern of the New Testament. The pattern of the New Testament is that disciples do not need to be begged to go and tell the good news of Jesus Christ. The New Testament shows us that as people encounter Jesus, their feet move on their own to go and tell. In John chapter four, the woman at the well runs to town and says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Acts chapter four, Peter and John before the council that tried Jesus, threatening them to stop speaking. And Peter says, we cannot but speak of all that we have seen and heard. Acts chapter nine, just after Paul's conversion, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, proclaiming he is the son of God. Independence Day weekend will for my family always be an important special moment because this was the weekend two years ago that we moved to Plano. We moved to Plano two years ago on the weekend around Independence Day, and we moved here on mission. We were being called here on mission. And I've been often asked by my Canadian friends, what is it like living in the United States? And the response I give every time, I don't know. I live in Texas. But each of us are sent on mission in our lives into different places, surprising places. These disciples on the road to Emmaus, at the end of this story, they are on mission. What drives them? Luke tells us in this story, this road to Emmaus story, that it's about the transformation that takes place in this journey for these two disciples. They are radically changed on this road. See, they begin this journey scattering and blind. And they end this story returning in mission with eyes wide open. Verse 13, we read in Luke 24, verse 13, that very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. I saw the road of Emmaus this week when I was in Jerusalem. It's not been well kept and people argue about where exactly Emmaus itself is, but I got to see it and they're in the process of repairing the road to Emmaus. And what's amazing is that we at Christ Church have a unique opportunity because we have the opportunity to partner with a church planter in Jerusalem. A Canadian church planter, don't worry, it's not a Canadian invasion, but a Canadian church planter who's my age, 
grew up in Jerusalem, speaks Hebrew without an accent. He's truly Middle Eastern. And he is planting, with our help, a Hebrew-speaking Anglican church on the road to Emmaus now. See, this, this road to Emmaus is so symbolic for us as Christians because this story for 2,000 years has held the significance of transformation into mission. Like I said, verse 13, they're on their way to the road to Emmaus, but that ultimately means that the disciples' band is already scattering. You see, the disciples are back in Jerusalem, and here's two disciples, Cleopas and another unnamed disciple we'll talk about next week, But these two disciples are leaving. The the disciples' band is scattering. It's breaking up. Perhaps they're going back home. They're going back to their former lives before they met Jesus. They're scattering. But not only are they scattering, Jesus comes and starts walking with them. And verse 15 and 16 says, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Not only are these disciples scattering, but they're blind. They can't even see that it's Jesus who's walking with them. And yet Emmaus is a road of transformation. Because by the end, we will see them on mission. Verse 31 says that their eyes were opened. Verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. By the end of this story, they realize who they've been walking with. Blindness to eyes open, but also into mission. Because in verse 33, it says, and they rose at that same hour. And by the way, that same hour, verse 29 says, that was very late. The day was already far spent. The day is done. And yet even in the middle of the night, it seems, they're willing to return to Jerusalem. Verse 35, and they told what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. See, these disciples have had a massive transformation in their very hearts walking on this road. Blindness to sight. Scattering disciples now returning in mission. And the Emmaus Road, therefore, symbolizes for us that transformation that each and every disciple, you and me, that transformation that we need in our own lives. But you know what's amazing in this story? It's more than just a transformation from blindness to sight. It's more than just a transformation from being scattering to being on mission. The transformation is really what happens in their hearts. They have a heart transplant. They have a heart change. You see, in verse 25, Jesus says to them these these powerful words of admonition. He says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. The heart in scripture, the heart is the place of commitment. It's the place of orientation, right? Where's your heart? It defines what you're committed to and what your life is oriented around. And he says to them, your hearts are slow, which means your hearts are obtuse, are bland. Your hearts are lukewarm. Your commitments are lacking. Your orientation is broken. Your hearts are slow. But yet these slow-hearted, bland-hearted disciples, by verse 32, say these words. They said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us 
as he walked with us on the road, and as he opened to us the scriptures. Did not our hearts burn? These disciples who had slow hearts are now by the end of their journey on Emmaus burning with commitment, burning with a new orientation around Jesus. When I was in Ethiopia a few years ago while I was on my sabbatical, I had the opportunity to teach at a theological college, an Anglican theological college, and one of the Sundays I got taken out to preach in one of the churches. And it was an amazing experience being there with, with, with two layers of translation because of the different people groups gathered in this church. And as I preached, I was about two minutes into my sermon, and of course every second line, you know, have to stop and let it be translated once and then twice. I'm about two minutes in, and I'm thinking, we got a long way to go, and all of a sudden, up pops this lady from the Mother's Union. Those of you who know African Anglicanism well, the Mother's Union are a gathering of all the different women in the parish. And they wear these beautiful Mother's Union uniforms. And they see themselves as the God-appointed hygiene and caregivers for that community. They train up the children in the faith. They train up the young mothers how to raise children. They're a powerful force. And this mother's union lady stands up and starts singing and clapping down the aisle two minutes into my sermon. And then a whole bunch of them all get up and they start dancing and singing and clapping. And I thought, okay, they really don't like what I've said. This is their way to shut me up. And I looked at the translator and he said, I said, am I, am I supposed to be done? And he goes, oh no, no, no. They're just excited that the sermon has started. And I said, in North America, it's the other way around. They get excited when the sermon is ending. <laughs> their hearts in these ladies, their hearts were burning as they heard the scriptures opened. And so for these disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke is telling us that what drives us into mission is not cajoling, is not admonition, is not begging people to go and tell. Luke is telling us that mission emerges when hearts burn, when the scriptures are opened. Mission emerges when hearts burn as the scripture is opened. The feet follow burning hearts into mission. But here's the challenge in our context here in North America. There is no shortage of preaching and Bible teaching around us, is there? But there's a great shortage of mission. It's been amazing coming here and over two years acclimating and getting to know Plano. I know that this week, uh, Plano, again, two years in a row, voted as the best place to live in America. I mean, it's incredible. We love living here. It's like the woman who's visiting a church and she goes and she visits the church one day and as she's traveling for business and there's a phone by the altar. And this phone, this golden phone by the altar has a sign over top of it that says $10,000 per minute. And so she asks an usher and says, what's with the phone? $10,000 a minute? And the usher says, you know, it's a direct line to heaven. She says, okay. 
She starts visiting other churches and notices that this phone is in multiple churches. She's in Seattle, she's in New York, she's in LA. This golden phone next to each of the altars with the sign $10,000 per minute, direct line to heaven. And then one day she wanders into Christ Church Plano and she finds a golden phone sitting right next to the altar. But there's a sign on this one that says 25 cents a minute. And she grabs one of our ushers and says, okay, I've been all over the country. I've seen these phones everywhere and everywhere I see these golden phones, this direct line to heaven, it says $10,000 a minute. How can your sign possibly say 25 cents per minute? And the usher says, it's easy because from here it's a local call. But here's the problem. We live in the Bible Belt, and many of us actually think that might be partly true. We we live in a place where there is so much Bible teaching, and there is so much preaching, and yet a great shortage of people on mission. So what gives? It, It seems that it's not just a matter of stuffing more Bible knowledge into people, cramming more Bible into their minds and into their hearts. There seems to be something that is vital in the opening of Scripture that will actually make a heart burn. You see, Jesus models this as he teaches them on the road to Emmaus. Like many here in Bible Belt America, the Emmaus disciples, these two disciples, did not have any lack of knowledge. They just didn't have burning hearts. See, look at verse 14. It's a fascinating little phrase, the phrase, these things. It pops up again and again in this text. Verse 14, they were talking with each other about these things. Now, these things they're talking about are the events of the passion They're talking about all that's happened in Jerusalem. Jesus coming into Jerusalem, his glorious Palm Sunday procession, right? His teaching in the temple, his arrest, his crucifixion, and his death. They're talking about these things. But this phrase, these things, keeps coming up. In verse 18, we read, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened in these days? Verse 19, Jesus says, what things? And then verse 21, yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. You see, these Emmaus disciples, they knew their Bible. They knew a lot about Jesus. They'd been walking with Jesus. They had even heard reports, credible reports, that perhaps he'd been raised from the dead, and yet still something was missing for them. It wasn't until verse 27 that we see that phrase, these things again, but hear what Jesus, hear what Luke says. And beginning with Moses, And all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures these things concerning himself. 
See, it's not until Jesus with these disciples on Emmaus says, let me help you understand all these things that have happened in the context of the whole of scripture, in the context of all of God's story. See, as Jesus opens up the whole of the scriptures and says, let me show you how everything that just happened in Jerusalem has in fact been predicted and anticipated and seen all throughout the scriptures. Only then do their hearts burn within them as he opens those scriptures, these things as seen everywhere in scripture. Jesus showed himself to them in all of scripture. That's what verse 21, 24, seven is saying. Verse 27 is saying he showed them in all the scriptures. Look at verse 44, which is coming later in the text. Jesus says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus is saying that my story has been seen all the way through scripture. All the way through scripture. Everywhere in the Bible. As St. Augustine famously would say of Jesus and our reading of Jesus within the Old and New Testament, Augustine says this, he says, the new is in the old concealed. The new is in the old concealed. And the old is in the new revealed. It all is there, it all points to Jesus. And we don't know what that Emmaus Road teaching included. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could grab a transcript of how Jesus opened the scriptures that day on the road to Emmaus? But you know, we don't need a transcript because we've got his transcript, we've got the Hebrew Bible. Could it be that Jesus on the road to Emmaus said to them something like this? Remember in Deuteronomy 18 when Moses said there was a prophet coming after him that would be greater and to them the people would listen? That's me. Do you remember in 2 Samuel chapter 7 in the covenant with David when God says to David of your offspring I will give a kingdom that will last forever? Is it possible that he said have you read the book of Jonah? Do you know that it was the Christ who was prefigured in the belly of the whale as the belly of the earth three days and three nights? Have you read the book of Ruth where she meets her redeemer, her Boaz, her Christ in the field, her redeemer? Do you hear the Passover story of that Passover lamb? Do you hear about the fourth person that's in that fiery furnace in the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Do you hear of Isaiah's suffering servant? Do you hear of Abraham's ram in the thicket on Mount Moriah? Do you hear in Genesis 3 the predicted one who will come and crush the serpent's head? He is everywhere in every part of Scripture. And it is when he reveals himself in the whole of scripture, when he reveals himself as the center of every bit of our scriptures, then hearts begin to burn. As a professor of mine used to say, an Old Testament professor of mine used to say, Paul, if you get to the end of a sermon on an Old Testament passage and a Jewish rabbi at the back of the room stands up and said, I would have said it exactly as you said, then you have failed your calling. Christ is everywhere in scripture. 
And what is found throughout is not just Christ, but Jesus shows us on the road to Emmaus that it's Christ and him crucified. Look at verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and then enter into his glory? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer? The suffering of the Messiah, the suffering of Christ Jesus is again at the core of scripture. All of human history has been waiting for this moment. Again, later in the text in verses 46 and 47, when he's back with the disciples, we read, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You see, what scripture points us to, all of scripture, Genesis all the way to maps. Think about it. (laughs) Scripture all points to the fact that humanity is not going to solve our own problems. Scripture, every story is telling us that we're not getting better on our own. That it's not just a matter of a little bit of self-improvement that's going to make us right. It's not some, some, kind of, some kind of moral therapeutic deism that we're presented with. Just make me a little more moral. Just make me feel a bit better about myself. Just let me have have a little bit of a sense of God beyond me. No, the core of scripture tells us that unless one will stand in our place and bear our sin, bear the wrath of God, bear everything wrong and wicked within us, then we will never be fixed. And then Christ, Jesus climbs that mountain and as he comes onto the top of Calvary and as he is pinned to that cross, And he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's declaring to us the reality that in that moment, he was forsaken instead of me. He was forsaken instead of you. He stood in our place. Christ crucified is the moment that all of history had waited for and all history will move out from that center point of history when we were in Jerusalem this week. We had an amazing moment when we went to the Holy Sepulchre Church. For those of you who've been there, you've got both within one huge church what is believed to be the sites of both Golgotha and the tomb. And of course, it's ornate and it's huge and there's incense and and all kinds of Eastern Orthodox art all around. And the tourists, oh my word, the lines... And so I'm sitting there walking in line to get up to Golgotha. And I'm there with three other Anglican priests. We're all on our tour day. And as we're walking closer to the place where people believe Golgotha is and where, in fact, there's a hole there in the ground where you can reach your hand down and people believe that is where the cross of Christ actually sat. And we're like, I don't know if that's really the place or not the place, but let's go check it out. And so we're on this little pilgrimage and there's four Anglican priests. And we notice this dear woman just in front of us. And as she gets to the steps of Golgotha, she gets on her knees and begins crawling on her knees towards Golgotha. It's, it's an act of piety. It's an act of deep devotion. 
And immediately we were amazed by that, but also immediately horrified by all the tourists that were banging into her and pushing her. And I mean, she was having such a hard time making this pilgrimage on her knees to the place where we believe that Christ may well have paid for the sins of the world. And so all of a sudden, the four of us got into flank formation. Four Anglican priests, we surrounded her. We started putting our elbows out towards all the tourists and we made room this little guard of priests preparing the way for this woman to kneel at the place where her Savior died. See, it is Christ crucified that makes hearts burn. It is the gospel that he has stood in our place that makes our hearts burn, gets us on our knees, and will move us in the mission, as Paul said to Corinth, and as I say to you at Plano, I desire to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. What will drive us into mission? What will help us be driven to share Christ with the world? It's not going to be by cajoling or admonitions, and it's certainly not going to come because of begging Luke says that mission emerges from a heart that burns as the scriptures are opened. John Wesley, as I close, was a failed Anglican priest, at least in his own mind. He'd already done a mission to America and came back to England feeling completely useless. And he became one of the greatest missional leaders of the last several hundred years. And he recorded his own Emmaus moment in his journal. He writes this, he says, in the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society meeting in Aldersgate Street, where a person was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. And about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. Did our hearts not burn within us as he walked with us on the road, opening to us the scriptures? Wesley's burning heart led him wildly into mission, traveling more than 20,000 miles per year in preaching. Our burning hearts will lead us wildly into mission. As I flew home from Israel, I had a renewed sense of personal vision, personal vision for my ministry. And it's nothing less then preach Christ and him crucified everywhere in scripture till hearts burn and feet follow into mission. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.